Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter number 19. We're going to finish up the, the chapter, Acts 19, this morning. We'll finish this chapter up. We saw two Sundays ago, my message was powerless faith. And we saw the seven sons of Siva, and they tried to cast out demons in Jesus' name, but they didn't know Jesus. And the, the demons said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And we saw powerless faith two weeks ago. Last week, we saw the alternative to powerless faith, and that's what I want. That's what I want our church to have, and that was powerful faith. And we have an option as Christians. We can have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And are we going to be a powerless church and a powerless child of God, or are we going to know the Holy Spirit's power, the power of God, and a powerful faith? And this morning, we will look at persecuted faith. Here's the reality that you will find when you read through the Bible and really when you study Christianity throughout history. Whenever and wherever the word of God increases mightily, opponents and attacks will increase mightily as well. You see, the enemies of God, the, the demonic forces, the principalities and powers that are there, they do not like it when God comes and works in a life in power. I've seen it often where somebody uh, gives their life to Christ and really starts to try to take steps, and then they'll come and say, Pastor, right when I gave my life to God, then it was like all of these attacks came, all of these trials came, all of these difficulties came. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't, seems like if I give my, my life to Jesus, it should all get better. And by the way, it does all get better, but it doesn't always get easier. Don't buy into the lie that when we follow God that he promised us the American dream and, and I give $5 and he's going to give me $5,000. That's, that's not a scriptural gospel. That's, that's a Western prosperity gospel that we like to preach. But, but, but whenever, wherever and whenever the word of God increases mightily, opponents and attacks will increase mightily as well. Look at verse number 20 by way of review where we were last week. Paul is in the midst of his third missionary journey and he's here in Ephesus for an extended season of ministry. Let's look at verse number 20 and read it aloud. We saw this last Sunday. Acts 19, verse 20. Ready? Begin. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. I love that verse. That's what I want in my life. That's what I want in my family. That's what I want in our church. That's what I want in Orange County. That's what I want in California. That's what I want in America. That's what I want around the world, that the Word of God would grow mightily and prevail. I love that verse. But skip down three verses. Verse number 23, read it aloud with me. Ready? Begin. And the same time there arose no small stir about the way. I like, King James has some cool verbiage sometimes. I like that turn of phrase there. There arose no small stir about that way. That way was a reference to, the, to, to the, the way of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. And when you see that phrase there, that way, the Christianity, there arose no small stir. What did it say? Some big problems came, out, came, came about. 
it started to get a little crazy, not just a little crazy, a lot crazy. And we're going to see that. And the story we're going to read as we finish up Acts 19 this morning is the last recorded event during Paul's time in Ephesus. He goes out with a bang here. And we're going to read this interesting story. And I think it's helpful to understand as we read the Bible in context that the 41 verses that we read as Acts 19, those were three years of Paul's life and ministry. We read them in about eight or 10 minutes. It covered three years. And really the Bible just gives us a few stories from those three years. And then a couple of summary verses, verses like, and the gospel went to everybody in Asia. Everyone in that region heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that tells us there was a lot of daily work, daily witnessing, daily discipleship, but the Bible doesn't tell us all about that. It gives us a summary verse of many people got saved and their lives were changed. And we saw last week, they burned the books of the curious arts, their magic spells. They got things out of their life that didn't belong there anymore. They got idols out of their lives. It gives us some summary verses that give us a little peek into that. But these 41 verses cover three years. Paul was in Ephesus ministering for three years and God had used him mightily in a, in a pagan carnal, worldly culture. Ephesus was a place known for its idols, for its love for theater, for sports, for wealth, for worldliness. We're going to see it today. The, the place that they worshiped, the temple of Artemis or Diana, that uh, was temple prostitutes and just debauchery in the name of their God all around. This is where Paul is ministering, but we saw powerful faith. But when powerful faith comes, very often you can expect some level of persecution in your faith. Now, let me stop right here. I'm going to get to this a little bit at the end, but I just want to say by way of introduction that we as American believers, we have it very good. We know nothing of persecution on the level that many of our brothers and sisters in nations around the world know it, even today. I see our missionary and his wife, Brother Mrs. Esposito back here, and he's a, they're missionaries to uh, restricted access nations in Asia. They've served in multiple uh, 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 nations there where it is not what we would call, humanly speaking, open to the gospel, governmentally speaking. Now, there is no closed nation with God. The gospel is at work in every nation on earth. But, but he can tell you that we in America have traveled just a little bit. We know nothing of persecution like some of what we see in Scripture and even today around the world. But when you reject, we saw two weeks ago, powerless faith. When you reject powerless faith and seek hard after a powerful faith, you can expect to encounter some level of persecution in your faith. Opponents, critics, attacks from sometimes within the church and sometimes without the church. Don't forget it was a religious mob that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Sometimes it's those that claim the name of, of God that will be those that will bring attacks. John MacArthur said, effectiveness and persecution usually go hand in hand since an effective church is a bold church and a bold church is often a church made strong through suffering. But again, this is a foreign concept from the modern day church in America because we have, and I'm thankful for it, we have enjoyed so much prosperity and relative comfort and ease for centuries. But it is good to be reminded as you study the book of Acts the book of Acts recounts that the early church faced persecution from its inception. In Jerusalem, that persecution came from organized religion. In Antioch, it stemmed from prejudice and envy. In Lystra, it was the result of paganism. 
In Philippi, it was the reaction to a victory over the the demonic realm. In Thessalonica, it came from an unruly mob urged on by jealous religious leaders. In Athens, the gospel faced the opposition of worldly philosophy. In Corinth, it came from Judaism, this time in a Roman court. Wherever the church boldly and faithfully proclaims the gospel, it faces satanic opposition. Can I say that statement again? Wherever the church boldly and faithfully proclaims the gospel, it will face satanic opposition. What did Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter number 2? He said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What did Jesus tell his disciples in John 15? These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Meaning, if they're listening to me to trap me in my words and writing down everything I say to get to prove that I'm wrong, they're going to do the same thing to you. They're going to mischaracterize your faith and your beliefs and your stands to try to make you look bad. Don't be surprised, Jesus told his disciples, that it's not always smooth sailing as a child of God and as the church of God. So let's read this crazy account that finishes up this, this chapter, these three years of Paul's time in Ephesus. Verse number 23, let's, we read verse 23. Look at verse 24. So what was the no small stir? Verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. So we've got a businessman. He's in the business of making um, uh, silver replicas of this great, huge temple, this amazing temple, to, uh, the, the temple of Artemis, the temple to the goddess Diana. And he would make these little, these little uh, souvenirs. And when people would come, and by the way, Ephesus became, that, 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 and the temple became this financial, just huge center. And people would come. And when they came, just like you and me, when we go to Disneyland, we get a little souvenir to take home, right? Or if we go wherever, and I've got on my office a shelf of the places I travel, I've got different little souvenirs that you buy in these places. They would, they would make these things, and it was huge business. He said it was no small gain. They were making money hand over fist, selling people little replicas. We went uh, with our, our church. We went to uh, Tanzania a couple years ago, and a couple summers ago, and we stopped in Dubai, and we were there, and I bought a little silver replica of the, uh, the, the Burj, what is that called? The Burj Al Khalifa, whatever that, that's called. It's in my office. This, the tallest building in the world there, and I have it sitting there. Well, that's what this was. These guys were making these little souvenirs, and people would take their, their temple souvenir home to put in their office shelf. Verse number 25. So he calls together all the craftsmen whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, sirs, you know by this craft we have our wealth. We're making good money selling to these people. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, this is a beautiful testimony of Paul's life and ministry, not just in our city, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. You can't worship. There is, there's no God in anything that we can make as silver, as craftsmen, as silversmiths. 
This Paul's not just messing up our city. He's messing up all these other cities. All of our, the silversmith guild, all of our fellow silversmiths that are making all this money in the souvenir industry, we are losing money like crazy. We got to do something about this. Verse number 27. So that now he, he goes, because he, he realizes he sounds a little bit selfish. So that not, not only this, our craft is in danger to be said it not. We're going to lose our whole business. But also, he, may, he, put, he puts it in some religious terms. Also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. She was worshipped and there were temples to Diana all throughout the known world. He said, the, the one, the great goddess that we all worship, her name is going to be destroyed. Nobody will worship her anymore if we don't do something about this. And when they had heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. So get the picture. Demetrius realizes business trends are going in the wrong direction. He looked at his portfolio, he opened up his Fidelity account, and the stocks were not doing so well. He said, if I don't do something about this, it's kind of like those of you that invested in some crypto. He looked at it and it went right to the floor, right? And uh, he, said, he said, if I don't do something about this, it's, maybe you invested at the right time and it went to the roof, but whatever. Well, that's another conversation for another time. If I don't do something about this, it's not going to be good. So he gets them all together, and they find two of Paul's, Paul's comrades, two of Paul's partners, two of Paul's traveling companions, and they rush them into the theater. Now, the theater was a huge entertainment complex. We're told by historians, much about that I believe is still there in Ephesus. You can visit it. We're told by historians that it could seat 25,000 people. So the city, they, they, they're, they're mad, they're angry, there's an uproar, everybody's, you, the streets, people are pouring out into the streets. Hey, that guy, did you hear about Paul? And he was fine for three years, but Demetrius got him worked up. He's, he's going to destroy Diana, our city, our economy, it's all going down the tubes. They, they find two of them and they take them in to the temple. Look at verse number 30. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. Paul was going to go in and defend his friends. And the other disciples said, no, Paul, it's, it's, you're going to die if you go in there. It's not a good place. Right now, it's not wise for you to go. Verse 31. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, so some powerful people, uh, sent unto him, desiring that he would not adventure himself into the theater. They, they, these powerful people in that area said, somebody make sure Paul doesn't find his way in there because we're going to have a big problem on our hands if he does. They're going to kill him and we're going to have to deal with all of that. This is not good. We've got an angry mob rioting. A mob of tens of thousands likely likely over 20,000 people. Now notice what it says in verse 32. Some therefore, those in the mob, cried one thing. They're, they're saying something about Diana. The other, another. For the assembly was confused, and the more part, the, the biggest part of them, knew not wherefore they were come together. Some of them were protesting one thing, somebody was protesting something else, and some were like, I don't even know what's going on, I'm just here for the party. We've hosted some Super Bowl parties at our house and people will come in and, and I'll say, are you here for the, last year, are you here for the Buccaneers? No. Are you here for the Ch Chiefs? No. And they're like, I'm here for the chicken wings. I don't know why, I'm not here to root on any team. I'm just here for some fun. 
well, this, this confused mob, some of them are really angry. Others didn't get the memo. They just saw a big scene and, and walked in. Like, what are we chanting about? What are we mad about? Let's, and that's what's happening. There's, a, there's an angry mob. Some people know what they're mad about. Others don't. And, and, the rest, and the rest of them are like, we're not sure why we're here. We're just having fun. Verse number, I don't know if they were having fun, but, but we're just here for the, for the scene. Now notice verse number 33. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. So he stands up and, and, and tries to calm him. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours, thousands of people screaming, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk, that'd be like the mayor, the liaison between uh, the city of Ephesus and the Roman government, when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, notice this, you men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Many believe that may have been a meteorite that had fallen and uh, there had been a stone or a rock somebody had found and they began to worship that because it had fallen from the heavens. And, and he says to them, he says, what are we all mad about? Is there anybody that doesn't link Ephesus with worship of Diana? She's not losing her market share. Now, I would like to say this. The power of the gospel is that she did end up losing 100% of her market share. We know of Ephesus now because of the letters to the Ephesians and the believers. Nobody today worships Diana. Nobody today worships that. But here, the, the town clerk says, what are you guys all worried about? Nothing's happening here. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against. Everybody knows this. You ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For you have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. By the way, I want to just stop here, right here and say, Paul spent little time preaching against their gods and spent most of his time lifting up the one true God. He said, Paul's ministry is not to blaspheme Diana. Paul's ministry is to lift up Jesus. Why are you so defensive? He's not, he's not even talking about your religion in his services. And, 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 and there is a time and a place to point out error in our society and to preach against certain things. But as Christians, may I just say, we should be known for who we are for more than what we are against. If we will lift up Christ consistently, it will be obvious what we stand against. Paul and the Christians in Ephesus didn't waste any of their time picketing the temple of Diana or protesting the sale of idols. They spent their time preaching the one true Jesus. And so we see here, it says in verse 38, wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open and there are deputies, let them implead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. He basically said, what are you guys worked up about? If you've got a real problem with Paul and you think he's doing something illegal and hurting our city, there are proper channels for that. Go to the court, go to the right judge, and they'll decide if you're right or not. If you're not, and you guys do something stupid in this riot, and you kill somebody or you hurt somebody, we're all going to be in big trouble with the Roman government. He says, stop this. And so now that the, the, uh, the crowd disperses after some really tense moments. And here we see this group led by Demetrius, the head of the local silversmith guild, worried at, with the idol industry uh, declining. 
And we see here with, with, with this group, these opponents of Christ and his church, I want you to see by way of introduction, they were people of wrong doctrine, Diana over Jesus. They were people of wrong priorities, the earthly over the eternal. They were worried more about their business than God's business, more about money than the work of God. They were people of wrong associations. Demetrius and got them all together and they got everyone in an uproar. And may I just stop and say, be careful who you listen to. The news you watch, the articles you read, the things that get you all stirred up, there arose no small stir and it started with one guy. They were people of wrong purposes. They were living for self over truth. Their gain was more important than God's glory. And they were people of a wrong message. They were lying. Paul's focus wasn't tearing Diana down. It was lifting Jesus up. Paul wasn't trying to destroy Ephesus like they said. He was trying to rescue Ephesus. And may I just stop and say that anytime any one of us, we start to slip in these areas, we are in danger of being used as an opponent or enemy of the work that God is doing. We get off in our doctrine. We get off in our priorities. We get off in our associations, in our purposes, in our message. We are in danger of, of, of being opponents or of hurting the work that God is doing rather than helping it. Attacks on the gospel and the church don't always come from without, from people who hate God. Sometimes they come from within, from people who bear the name of God. So, and here's my message. If we've been promised that we will face attacks and opposition, and we see it all through Paul's ministry, how should we respond if and when our faith faces some level of persecution? I want to give you a few thoughts this morning from this passage. What do we see when Paul and the Christians here in Ephesus, when their faith was persecuted, when they were spoken falsely against, when they were mischaracterized, when people were trying to imprison them, or worse, wouldn't it have been great for Satan if he could, after three years of ministry, if he could get Paul imprisoned or even killed? What should we do when we face the attacks and opposition to our faith? I want to give you a few thoughts. Number one, don't run. Don't run. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, they pull Paul's friends in. They rushed with one accord into the theater. Notice verse 30. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people. What was Paul's response when his friends were taken in front of the angry mob? I've got to go help them. Paul was ready to go in. Paul didn't say, oh, did you, they're, they're, they're hurting those over there, I'm out of here. No, for Paul, God can take care of us. Paul's first response was not run. By the way, there are times, when I'll get to this on my next point, but where Paul did leave a town quickly and there was wisdom there, but Paul's first response when the going got tough anywhere was not to run. Christian, don't let your first response to any trouble in your life be to run. The work of God needs steadfast, unmovable, passionate, committed Christians. God save us from a weak, timid Christianity, that, that mentality that bows under pressure, that runs when faced with opposition, that cowers in the face of attacks. Stay where God has placed you. Stand in his strength and rest in his power. Just because attacks come when you're living for God doesn't mean that God has left you. Just because the enemy seems powerful doesn't mean that God is powerless. Just because the opposition is real doesn't mean that God's plan is thwarted. Don't quit. Don't run. Paul didn't run all through his ministry when opposition came. He kept preaching. He stayed strong. When it meant imprisonment, he stayed faithful. Christian, it was so easy for us. Something doesn't go our way and we're gone. We're done. I tried that and God, you didn't come through the way I wanted you to. Paul, when the trouble came, Paul went to the trouble. He was ready to go in and defend his friends. 
in your life and in mine. Don't quit, Pastor Tomlinson, a good number of you, uh, a large portion of you were here uh, during the 25 years when he was pastor of our church. We'll be back here next month preaching our 45th anniversary. Pastor Tomlinson had a little business card that he put in every letter that he ever sent to anyone. Many of you have it. I've been to your homes and visited. I've seen it on your, on your desk or on a mantle. I've seen it in places. Some of you still have it on your fridge. He would send it to everyone, and, and it would have two words and a, and a Bible verse reference. For those that were here in those days, if you ever received one of these, what were the two words that it said? What was it? Don't quit. He sent out probably tens of thousands of those through his 25-year ministry here. Don't quit. And on it, it said Galatians 6, 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The first thing I want us to understand is when we seek hard after a powerful faith, we will face some level of persecution. I'm not saying our opposition or our attacks are on the level of the martyrs, but when God is working in a life, Satan will oppose that work in a life. And when Satan opposes that work and you're walking through trials and difficulties and temptations and heartbreaks, what should be our response when our powerful faith that we're seeking after becomes on some level a persecuted faith? Number one, don't run. Number two, don't react. Don't react. Look at verse, chapter, uh, verse 30, the end of it. Paul was ready to go in. Notice this. The disciples suffered him not. In verse 31, the, the chief of Asia, they desired him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Just because we don't run from attacks doesn't mean we need to do the opposite and react and try to fix it all. Sometimes we make the trial and the trouble worse by reacting in the flesh. Oh, they're going to do that to me? They're going to they're stand up against me? Well, let me at them. It's a fight. It's on now. And there's a time. But, but contending for the faith doesn't mean we have to be contentious in the faith. And just because somebody is opposing us, be careful. Paul had some wisdom. He was ready to go in and some wise counselors around him. His disciples said, Paul, that's not a good idea. Hold off for a few minutes. Give that a little more thought. Some chief rulers reached out to them and said, whoever's close to Paul, can you make sure he does not come into this theater? Because we're going to have a bloodbath on our hands. And may I say, Paul didn't run, but he also didn't react in the flesh. He listened to some wise counsel around him when the trials came, when the attacks came, and he said, you know what? The wiser course of action right now, I'm not going to run, but I'm not also going to run into the trouble and react in a way that would cause more of a problem. Sometimes we escalate a situation or cause a bigger problem when we attack those back who have attacked us. Sometimes when you're faced with attacks in your Christian life, sometimes the best response is no response. Not always. And that's where we need the Holy Spirit. We need wisdom. We need wise counselors around us. But when Jesus was attacked and accused as they sought to crucify him, what does the Bible say? He answered them not a word. Did he run from crucifixion? No. But did he react in a, of course not, a sinful way? Of course not. In a fleshly way? Of course not. The Bible says in Proverbs, it's interesting, people will use this verse to try to show that the Bible, these two verses, that the Bible has contradictions in it, which it doesn't. The Bible is infallible. It's perfect. You can count on it. But there are two verses in Proverbs. One says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like him. And then another one says, answer a fool according to his folly. There it is. Can't trust the Bible. It goes against itself, Bill. Well, number one, if 
the writer of that was going against himself, he would have been a little smarter than to put it like in the same page where you could see them both next to each other. Not real smart. That, that's not a contradiction. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. What does it tell us? Sometimes there's a time and a place to answer a fool according to his folly. And other times it just makes you a fool if you answer them according to their folly. So how do I know when to do it? Let the Holy Spirit of God guide you. Let God's word guide you. Let godly people in your life guide you and give you wisdom. That's what Paul happened. Don't, don't, don't run, but also don't react. Number three, when, when our faith faces some level of persecution, don't seek revenge. I don't know about you, but when I've been spoken against, when I've been mischaracterized, when I know something's been said about me that wasn't true and I know the whole story and the story that was told wasn't right, I don't know about you, but my first response is to set the record straight. And not only set the record straight for me, but to let everybody know what I know about that person. So I don't just want my name cleared, I wanna muddy their name. I wanna seek revenge. My wife has often told me, if I hadn't become a pastor, I should have been a lawyer. I love building cases about why I'm right and they're wrong. It's not always the best formula in a marriage to, uh, to do that. That doesn't always work out the greatest. But my wife has been a saint, very patient and loving and kind. And uh, I, we often joke, her sister is the opposite. Per her sister and I have very similar personalities. And I say, I married the right sister because if I had married your, your sister, one of us would have been in jail or dead. We would have had some knockdown drag outs. <laughs> but don't seek revenge. You've been hurt. The answer isn't to hurt them back. Paul, everywhere he went, faced opposition. He was stoned. He was lied about. He was imprisoned. He was, he was beaten. He was run out of town. How many times do you read in the scripture? How many times did Paul seek to get even or hurt those who had hurt him? How many? None. What an example. Number four, what do we see when persecution comes? Don't stop preaching. It's one thing not to run, but we can stay in our same place and do nothing. I want you to look at chapter, we didn't read these verses yet. Look at chapter 20, the first two verses. Verse number one, look at verse number one. And after the uproar was ceased, before I get to the rest of those verses, can I just stop and say this? The uproar will cease. No trial lasts forever. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And what do we see here? After the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them, all the Christians, and departed for to go into Macedonia. Now that that had been handled, he's going to continue on where he said he wanted to go back in verse 21 of the previous chapter. He's going to go into Macedonia. He's going to pick up some offerings from the Gentile churches to take to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And, and he leaves for Macedonia. Look at verse number two. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them them much what church? Much what? Exhortation. He came into Greece. Everywhere we see Paul gets thrown into prison. They tell him don't preach. He gets out of prison. What does he do? He preaches. He's there in Ephesus. They're about to kill him in the theater. Twenty-some thousand people packed into this theater. Paul, it all gets taken care of. He embraces the disciples. I love you. I'm going to miss you. It's been a wonderful three years. Keep living for God. I'm going to write some letters back to you. In fact, there are four letters to get written back to Ephesian uh, believers, the, the book of, F, uh, of Ephesians, uh, the, the books of First and Second Timothy, and the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll be in touch with you. 
But he gives those hugs, and then he goes, and what does Paul keep doing? He keeps doing what he did before, much exhortation, encouragement, preaching, life change. We've got to change. Do you know the gospel? How's God working in your life? What can I do to encourage you? Keep living for God. Paul, just because he was persecuted, just because he faced opposition, just because he faced attacks, he didn't stop doing what God had called him to do. Don't allow the challenges and difficulties and enemies of the gospel to quiet your witness or diminish your boldness. Some people start out to live for Jesus. They face some opposition. They get lied about. They get hurt. They get betrayed, and they decide, that's it. I'm not doing that again. I'm done. No. Keep preaching. Keep loving. Keep serving. Somebody hurts you. Do your best to forgive them and go love somebody else. Somebody does you wrong. Do your best to have a right spirit and go minister to someone else. Don't let persecution in your life keep you from doing what God has called you to do. This story shows us how Paul and how we advance the kingdom of Christ, not by weapons, force, or violence. What did Paul do? Paul preaches the gospel. People get converted. They renounce sin and idolatry. And by the power of the Spirit, the whole social order of the area was impacted. Don't underestimate the power of what happens when you keep exalting Christ in a city filled with idols. No doubt this crowd of 25,000 Ephesians had left the theater congratulating themselves that they had successfully defended their great city and their famous goddess that was worshipped all throughout the world. But it's good to remember this. Ephesus is gone, and so is the worldwide worship of Diana of the Ephesians. The city and the temple and the silversmith's guild is gone. Ephesus is a place visited primarily by archaeologists and people on Holy Land tours. Yet the gospel that Paul preached and the church of Jesus Christ live on. We have four inspired letters that were sent there. And the name of Paul is honored, the name of Demetrius, forgotten. You don't have to answer back. Just keep preaching. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep preaching that which is eternal. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Christ. We share God's truth, not man's religious lies. Our motive is love, not anger. The glory of God, not the praise of men. The church will go on. It has gone on, and it will continue to do so. And then lastly, what should we do when we face some level of opposition, attack, persecution, if you will, for our faith? Number five, this is a weird one. Rejoice. I don't like that one. I rejoice on a lot of things. We had a high school basketball team party at my house yesterday, and Brother Ryan brought, brought some awesome pizza from a place I hadn't been to. I rejoice over some really good pizza I haven't tried before. I rejoice over a good meal. I rejoice over a good nap Sunday afternoon. Somebody say amen right there. There are a lot of things I rejoice about. I, I rejoice when I hear my children walking in truth. You know what I don't naturally rejoice about? Attacks on my faith or opposition to my faith. Difficulties in my way as I seek to live for God, challenges. Jesus said this, Blessed are they which are per persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you for, falsely for my sake. Uh-oh, here's the statement. I think we have that passage there. If we'll throw it on the screen there. Uh, the, the statement there, rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I don't like that one. 
I like the idea there's a reward. Okay, if I walk through it, I can maybe walk through it begrudgingly. I can walk through it with a bad attitude. I can, I guess, try to withstand it and endure it. But to rejoice about it, that's a different thing. I can say, God, why did you do this? I don't want it. Would you take it away? But if you want, I'll just try my best to live for you. But it's another thing to say, God, thank you for this. God, I'm so happy that this is in my life. I'm so glad for this pain. I'm so thankful for this opposition. I'm so gr grateful for those scars. No, that's not, by, that's not by nature what we do. But he says, rejoice. Paul said to the Philippians, right, written from a jail cell, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Count it all joy. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect worth, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What, what is he saying? Be excited when trials come because you understand it's those trials that God is using to shape you into who he wants you to be, to mold you into what he wants you to be. So don't, don't, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise the trials of life. Don't despise the opposition of the world. Rejoice, God, you're letting me be a, partake in the fellowship of your suffering. Most gladly, Paul said, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Rejoice. C.S. Lewis said, life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but peace in difficulties. God, thank you for this opposition. Thank you for this trial. Thank you for this attack. Thank you for this persecution. Can I ask you a question that I don't know the answer to in my own life? Could you rejoice Rejoice, not just endure. Could you rejoice if you pay, faced serious persecution for your faith? I want to introduce you to Denjuma Shikaru. We have a picture of him, and see that smile? Every picture you can find of, I can find him on the internet, has that huge smile. He's now an 18-year-old boy. He lives in Nigeria. Denjuma Shikaru's grave is still empty. When he was 13 years old, villagers dug his final resting place after he was critically wounded during a 2015 attack on their village. When they saw his mangled, lifeless body covered in blood, they fully expected him to die. But God had other plans. Three months after the attack, Danjuma's face is marked by horrendous scars where his right eye was carved out and by a beaming smile. Denjuma's memories of the attack begin with the gunshots he heard at about 6 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. He remembers running for his life and then being confronted by some of the more than 1,000 Islamic insurgents who attacked his Christian village, burning homes and killing villagers who didn't manage to escape. Although his memories of the attack are incomplete, one thing he'll never forget is the pain caused by a machete slicing through the left side of his head. The rest of the attack, by God's grace, he doesn't recall. Then I found myself in this situation, he said, and I can't remember how the story continues again. Dan Juma can't recall the attackers hacking at his left arm with a machete. He has no memory of them cutting out his right eye, and he doesn't remember them uh, cutting off and, and, and attacking him in other ways. Dan Juma is among the thousands of Nigerians who have been brutalized in violent riots, bombings, and villages, village raids since 1999 when Islamists began their campaign to establish Islamic law and an Islamic territory in the north. The insurgency escalated in 2009. In spite of what he has suffered, Danjuma is certain that God is still in control. 
He has no anger toward his attackers. There is no problem, he said. I have allowed God to handle everything. Denjuma not only forgives his attackers, but almost pities them for the condition of their hearts. I forgive them because they don't know what they are doing, he said, echoing the words of Christ. If they had love, they wouldn't behave that way. Following the attack, which left 23 villagers dead and 38 injured, survivors began to dig graves for those killed. Villagers had walked past Denjuma's body and assumed he was dead, but later they heard him crying and shouting. He had somehow regained consciousness. They transported him and others with serious wounds to the nearest city, about 25 kilometers away. They couldn't believe that the boy would come back alive after all of this, a manager at the hospital said. He bled so much, it's a miracle. That's why he calls himself Miracle. Prior to the raid, Danjuma was a typical Nigerian boy. He lived with his mother, a widow, and enjoyed playing with friends. He often went on fishing trips with fishermen from his village. It was after one of those trips that the attack occurred. While the attackers stole so much from Danjuma, they couldn't take his joy. It's still evident on his face and in his voice. And here's what he said. We can go to that next picture. The joy comes from the Lord. You have that second one there, TJ. And there's the smile there with his mom, and then the other one that shows the smile bigger. He said, the joy comes from the Lord. Danjuma said his relationship with God has only grown stronger since the attack. He continues to pray regularly and seek God's guidance. God continues to guide and protect. Danjuma's life is much different now. A catheter extends from his lower abdomen. He is fully dependent on God and his mother and on the care of others around him. Danjuma asked other believers to pray that his faith will continue to grow. If they hear my story, they should pray for me, for my broken heart, and that I have the strength to serve the Lord. Danjuma hopes that any children who read his story will remember that Christ can get them through any trial. If they find themselves in such a situation, they should embrace God, he said, still smiling. They should believe that the God who created, listen to this, they should believe that the God who created us knows everything about us. So let's be faithful and let's be kind. The way I find myself today, God knows the reason I'm supposed to be. So you should embrace God and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's a peace that passes all understanding. And how did we respond to that hurt and trial we faced this week? Puts things into perspective a little bit, doesn't it? That bitterness toward that family member, that anger toward that church member, that criticism of that fellow believer, that fight at work. How's our joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials? So in Acts 19, we see that we have two choices, a powerless faith or a powerful faith. We saw that the last two weeks. Today we see that powerful faith will often lead to a persecuted faith. When you tap into the power of God and begin to allow him to work in and through your life, there will be people and principalities that don't like it, that rise up to work against you. But all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What should we do when those times come? Church family, don't run. Those watching online, don't react. Don't, don't respond in the flesh. Don't seek revenge, keep preaching, and the hard one, rejoice. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.